Welcome, you are listening to LEAP, the podcast series that brings you interviews with leading scholars in law, economics and philosophy. We are Lynn Jonsudan, Jeroen van der Ven and Jaap Bai. Professor Kornhauser is Alfred B. Engelberg Professor of Law at the New York University School of Law. He is renowned for his work in legal theory and uh, law and economics, and he has articulated several responses to criticism on the economic analysis of law, which we will discuss today. Welcome, Professor Kornhauser. Thank you for participating in the podcast series. Thank you for having me. Professor, law and economics makes several claims, and in your work you have elaborated on the so-called behavioral claim. Can you explain what this claim entails? Well, the typical claims... Uh, or the claims that uh, spurred initial debates on the economic analysis of law uh, were made by Dick Posner in the early to mid-70s. And he made two claims. The first claim uh, was a claim that um, economic rules uh, were efficient, whatever that might mean. And the second claim was that they ought to be efficient. Now, uh, the behavioral claim is in some sense, certain way, prior to both those claims. It, it isn't about the rules, specifically. It's about how people behave in response to legal rules. The claim uh, thus simply is that people respond to legal rules uh, in an economic fashion. That is, in some sense, that economic uh, models or methods uh, can be used to understand people's responses to legal rules. In a previous episode of this podcast series, we discussed with Eric Posner some limitations of the descriptive economic theory in relation to contract law. And in that context, he mentioned that economic models are not always capable of predicting precisely how individuals will behave. First, because it's not clear how self-interested people really are, and more so because people may not always behave in a perfectly rational manner. Do you believe that Posner's observations of these limitations pose problems that affect the behavioral claim of economics? So we have to ask first, what, what, uh, what precisely is the economic model and what does it uh, presume? Now, in the most abstract formulation, the economic model is, in fact, very general and very flexible. And the question is, to what extent uh, can it capture any behavior? not just legal behavior. So I think Eric had in mind a much more uh, narrow specification of what economic, uh, the economic model is. Uh, and he, I think, was understanding it in terms of uh, what we might call an individual's narrow self-interest, maybe sufficiently narrow to be only their material interest. So uh, I guess I agree with Eric that people often do not always behave uh, in an economically self-interested way defined in terms of narrow self-interest. And I also believe that they're not always perfectly rational. So So let me address the extent to which each of those pose problems for the behavioral claim. Maybe first I should say something about the different ways in which uh, economic theory suggests 
a legal rule might influence behavior. So, so the economic theory suggests, in some sense, three different mechanisms or, uh, through which a legal rule might influence someone's behavior. The most common one, the one most studied uh, in the literature, economic analysis of law literature, is um, you might think of legal rules as incentives. That is, they put a legal rule puts a price on a particular behavior. So, a rule that says uh, any uh, emissions of sulfur dioxide above, you know, ten parts per million uh, will be taxed at a rate of a uh, hundred dollars per uh, units per day. Right? Um, is just pricing the behavior. Uh, of the emissions and in the standard account that will induce people uh, because they're paying a higher price to emit less. So that's the first way. This, the second way we might think of as legal rules is information. And sometimes legal rules just tell you, give people information about things and they then adjust their behavior in light of the information that they've been given. So the easiest example, perhaps not particularly uh, apt for the Netherlands is if you're driving in the mountains and uh, <laughs> you uh, come, you see a sign that says, you know, very sharp curve and then uh, speed 10 kilometers per hour. They're giving you information about the shape of the road and suggesting what might happen to you if you go faster than that. And so people then adjust their behavior in light of the information. And much um, legal regulation is sort of based on that idea. So disclosure laws are really meant to say, say uh, to say a manufacturer, you have to disclose certain risks or attributes of your uh, uh, product and uh, people can then act in response to the information that they get and that will be adequate for the law's concerns that will get the right behavior. So that's the second way. And the, the third way is, uh, is that it might change what people want. So it might influence what you know, the economists call an individual's preferences, uh, which isn't a particularly good word. We might think of it as what they care about. Uh, and some, some, we sometimes talk about laws in that way. So some people talked about uh, Brown v. Board of Education, uh, the American civil rights case in the 50s, is meant to change uh, individual attitudes towards race meant to change their preferences, not just you could say it could maybe it was meant to change their beliefs about differences across people, but maybe it was meant to change their preferences, what they cared about, that they should no longer care about um, skin color as things. So, and we could ask uh, to what extent each of these different social mechanisms is operative in any particular given. A legal context and um, what makes them operative. So we could ask in each of these contexts, uh, well, how, to what extent narrow self-interest uh, would uh, operate in this particular way. Okay, so that brings us to the two uh, concerns that Eric had. One is that people are not always narrowly self-interested. So I, I actually, as I said, theoretically, that's not problematic for the theory at all. 
Um, it's a practical problem because if we want to make policy recommendations or we want to do empirical work, we need to be able to specify what people's preferences are in order to make predictions about how they're going to behave. Uh, focusing on narrow self-interest makes prediction uh, straight, relatively straightforward because we all more or less agree on what constitutes narrow self-interest. Uh, when we say people care about other things, they care about, say, the welfare of their uh, spouses and their children, uh, then we, or they care about the welfare of people, you know, in continents far away, it becomes harder to understand or to specify the model in such a way that we can make a prediction. So it, it presents uh, some policy or pragmatic problems, but I don't think it presents a theoretical problem. Um, the second question is to what extent uh, the fact people's failure to be perfectly rational affects uh, the model. Uh, this is more serious, uh, and um, I think it, it, the model will be more useful in areas, uh, in contexts in which we think people are more, are closer uh, to perfect rationality, or in which we think deviations from perfect rationality are less likely to be large or to have large effects on what our predictions are. So we need some idea of how robust the results are of our model to small perturbations. But ideally, uh, we, will, we would develop better models that uh, better predict people's behavior, that take into account how uh, their limitations in rationality. Um, well, now we've discussed some criticism on uh, the behavioral claim of law and economics. Outside the field of law and economics, legal academics also have questioned the normative claim, namely that legal rules ought to be efficient. Do you believe that this criticism reveals a significant flaw in the economic analysis of law? Well, so uh, I'm actually someone who has criticized the claim that legal rules ought to be efficient. Um, so... Uh, I guess, and I still think of myself as doing economic analysis of law, so I, I guess I can't believe that it's fatal uh, or even really that significant. I, I think uh, that law, so the economic analysis of law is important, uh, I think, because we tend to have an instrumental view of law. That is, we think that law, we that is, we use legal rules to channel to guide individual behavior to achieve social objectives. To do that, if you believe the law is instrumental, then you need some way to connect the content of the legal rules to the behaviors of people, how people will respond to them. And I think economics uh, right now is the best theory that we have. It may not be a good theory or uh, the best theory we'll have in 10 years. But right now, it's the best theory we have for understanding how people will behave in response to these legal rules. So there are important questions about what legal rules ought to be aiming at, that is, what goal we should be striving for. But I don't think that, I don't feel that I necessarily as an economist have to uh, address that question.
So, if I understand you correctly, you say in so many words that it's not in the job description of the economist to claim which goals to strive for. But does the search for efficient legal rules not imply or at least suggest a preference for efficient legal rules over non-efficient legal rules? And if so, is that preference then not the type of normativity that indeed has been criticized? I think in general, it would be better to have efficient uh, rules. I mean, we, we're leaving unspecified what efficient means. Uh, and a lot of the controversy over the normative claim turned on the content of efficiency. So that Posner, not Eric, but Dick, um, uh, his father, used efficiency in a somewhat uh, idiosyncratic manner that is not in the way the economists use it in terms of Pareto efficiency. So, um, and Pareto, the, so the idea of Pareto efficiency, the idea that an arrangement, arrangement A is better than arrangement B if everyone is better off in arrangement A than in arrangement B, has a lot of intuitive appeal, right? That is, it's Right. How could we, in some sense, deny that uh, we shouldn't have A rather than B if A, uh, if everyone is better off under A than under B? And I feel I share that intuitive appeal. On the other hand, I think that, um, or it's not that I think, it's that Pareto efficiency is a very, turns out, even though it's very intuitive, turns out to be a very strong condition that is in conflict sometimes with other conditions we might want to impose on our institutions, which also has strong appeal. So um, how we balance the, the efficiency against these other uh, normative values uh, is a complicated question for public policy and for you know, philosophical debate. So in legal theory, law is often analyzed in terms of the binding nature of law. What, in your view, does the binding nature of law entail? And what role does it play in predicting how legal rules will affect the behavior of individuals? So this is a very uh, difficult and contested issue in legal theory. The question is, what does it mean to have a legal obligation? And I think the standard approach currently would be to say that what it means to say uh, the law is binding or for me to have a, an obligation to obey the law or for the law to give me that obligation would be say that I have a moral obligation to obey the law. So we might ask, that just seems to push the question back, what does it mean to have a moral obligation? Um, but it also points out that uh, or suggest that perhaps, and on some, someone like Kelson's view, perhaps, there is actually a d difference between what it means to have a legal obligation than what it means to have a moral obligation. So, so then the question is, well, assume there's some general idea of obligationness. How do obligations enter into our practical reasoning? And again, there are a number of different accounts of how they en enter in. So someone like Robert Nozick suggested that what it meant to have an obligation was to face a particular constraint, that you could not act in a particular way. So other people like Joseph Ross have suggested that what it means to have, that an obligation is what he calls an exclusionary reason, 
which is both what he calls a second-order reason for action and a first-order reason for action. So a first-order reason for action is uh, uh, a reason like any other reason. Right? It's a reason for me to do something or not to do something. So like a tax gives me a reason. A tax on emissions above a certain level gives me a reason not to emit above that level. Uh, but I have to weigh it against other reasons that I might have for not uh, emitting, which is how many, how much, how much higher my profits might be if I increase my emissions beyond the regulatory limit. So, um, a second-order reason uh, is a reason about my first-order reasons. An exclusionary reason tells me I shouldn't take into account in my decision-making certain first-order reasons. So in the emissions example, it's useful to contrast. We can characterize the regulation, and the regulation might have two different legal forms. It might have the form of a tax, or it might have the form of a fine. And we, uh, I think we lawyers, uh, I don't know whether the person on the street has this view, but lawyers, I think, think of those forms is very different. We think that a tax is a permission for someone to act. It says, look, we're going to tax, it's going to cost you, you know, $100 per unit extra if you admit, emit more. It's up to you to do it. We don't care whether you do it or not as long as you pay the tax. But if we say it's a fine, we're telling you something. We're saying to you that you ought not to do it. You have an obligation not to do it. And the actual fine, the level of the fine, is really not relevant to your decision-making, right? So what, what we're try telling you to do is to exclude certain things, this would be on Ross's account, from your considerations as to what, what, you, as to what you should do. So you should not increase, you sh shouldn't take into account simple taxes, uh, simple costs and benefits, like in standard economic conditions. But maybe you should take into account, say, large threats to health and safety. Unless I, so if, you, if we change this to emissions of radioactive material, you could say TEPCO has um, the, its obligation not to emit radiation above a certain amount from its plants it doesn't cover its current condition, right? It's, it, so it's, it might be more profitable for them in the ordinary course of business to uh, emit more. And they shouldn't take that into account, but they're allowed to take into account that if they don't vent X, the steam into the air, they are going to cause an explosion, which is going to have much greater harm to the population. So it's meant, so in this account, the obligation is meant to exclude certain reasons, but not all reasons you might have for taking a per particular action. So it's not quite a prohibition on your conduct, but it's meant to change the structure of your reasoning. Okay, so Roz offered that as a, a normative account of how you should reason. We could take it as a positive account, a descriptive account, how people do reason and ask what that sorts of behaviors that would predict. So it predicts in particular that people should respond differently to a fine than to a tax of the same amount. And I think actually one reason I think that um, environmentalists don't like uh, uh, taxes or uh, marketable 
pollution scheme, environmental permit schemes, is because those schemes give people a permission to pollute, and they think that's not appropriate, right? So they, they actually do have some sense of this difference that I think lawyers share of that the legal form, whether it's a tax or a fine, uh, matters. So the question is, do people behave like this or not? That's the question, uh, which is an empirical question, right? To what extent do they respond uh, to uh, legal obligations as exclusionary reasons as opposed to prices? To what extent do they respond to them as irrevocable or uh, irrebuttable constraints? Given criminal activity, not everyone's treating them as uh, as constraints. So, so I think that's an empirical question. And to what extent we need to adjust the theory or change uh, the content of people's preferences in order to accommodate this is um, up in the air. I think there are many contexts in which it does seem, as you suggested, that people's obligations are playing a role in structuring their behavior. So, and I think that's more clear for public officials than for private officials. So public officials, you know, judges being a good example, most of judicial behavior is not structured by incentive. That is, they don't get paid more per decision. They're not... Uh, you know, they, they have obligations to act impartially to decide uh, according to law, right? How those, uh, how they act on those obligations uh, to the extent those obligations have any effect are, are, are operating in some different way. So are you saying, uh, in effect, that the perception that legal rules are binding can function as an incentive? and therefore may help predict behavior? I don't think incentive is the right word. So I think to the, if, if people believe they have an obligation, uh, we, we then need, and they, we need to know how that belief about their obligation uh, structures their behavior. Mm-hmm. So, and I should point out, there are two different questions. One is, what beliefs do they have about the obligations they have? And what obligations do they actually have? So people might believe they have obligations when they have none, or they might not believe they have an obligation when they actually do. So uh, from the behavioral point of view, it's uh, their beliefs that are relevant as opposed to what to what obligations they actually have. The current uprisings in the Middle East shows that the respective populations in these dictatorial regimes do not or do no longer consider that the legal rules are binding. To what extent are economic models applicable to these kind of situations in which the binding nature of legal rules is lacking? Or more specifically, how do economic models account for the overthrow of dictatorial regimes by their own people? So I, I actually think this is two distinct questions. So one's a question in some sense of um, closer to normative political philosophy, and one's a question about 
the economics of uh, regime change. It's not clear to me that the people uh, in any of these regimes ever believed that they had a moral obligation to obey. They could easily have been obeying because it was prudentially wise, that it was in their self-interest not to obey. So the fact that uh, they obeyed up until time X and then started to resist doesn't say anything about, doesn't necessarily imply that their beliefs uh, about what obligations they had changed or whether the actual obligations they had changed or not. So, But something did change because their behavior changed. Right, so the question would be why? Uh, why did people in Tunisia decide to protest in January 2011 as opposed to January 2010 or December 2010? Or what is it that uh, changed the, their behavior? So it's going to be hard to find a model of any type. But I think economics might be able to tell us something about the structure of the situation. So I think an economic view of this would be to say the problem for the individuals facing a repressive regime is a problem of coordination. Right? That is, they, uh, if everyone resisted, uh, they would the government will fail. But if they resist one at a time, each of them will suffer. So the, in some sense, they need to coordinate their actions. And it turns out to be very difficult uh, for uh, people to coordinate their actions under any circumstances, but particularly difficult to coordinate your actions in, in when there's someone actively trying to stop you from coordinating your actions by uh, shooting you or torturing you or imprisoning you. So I, I think uh, an economic explanation of this would have to point to something that facilitated or precipitated the ability of the people to coordinate resistance against the regimes they were in. Uh, and for that uh, you know, a lot of that is going to be very uh, contextual as to what did that. Okay, well, Professor Kornader, thank you very much for this interview. This was LEAP, a podcast series of the Center for the Study of European Contract Law at the University of Amsterdam. The series is made in association with the Amsterdam Center for Law and Economics. For more information and more episodes, please visit us at www.jur.uva.nl/leap. Thank you for listening.